December 12, 2006. Josh Hughes was worried about his big brother, Sam. The two were close, as close as brothers could be. Just three years apart, they shared the same interests, including their love of muscle cars and drag racing. They hung out with the same circle of friends, all of whom did home improvement. And even though Josh didn't quite share Sam's passion for sports, Sam being a huge Cincinnati Bengals fan, he often took advantage of game day as an excuse to hang out with his brother. But Sam was a troubled soul. He had long dabbled in marijuana, but he'd admitted to his family he'd tried cocaine a year earlier, and he couldn't shake its irresistible grip. He was dealing in drugs to pay for his habit and supplement the money he made painting houses. His longtime girlfriend, the mother of his six-year-old son and namesake, had had enough. She moved out of their Akron home the week before. He was desperate to reconcile, to get his little family back. But the numb haze of his addiction was always obvious in his eyes, even in the moments he spent trying to be a good father. Josh almost stopped by Sam's house the night before to check on him. It was just a whim. They lived in the same North Hill neighborhood and he was driving by anyway. But it was well past midnight, so Josh shrugged the idea off. On Tuesday, Josh's friend and boss, Greg, picked him up in the work van and the pair started out for independence for a plumbing job. As they headed north on the highway, Greg's cell phone rang. Josh listened as Greg exchanged a few brief words with the caller, then hung up. Greg turned to Josh. He didn't mince words. Sam's dead, he said. Nobody had to tell Josh what had happened. He was sure Sam must have overdosed, The drugs that had robbed him of his relationships and his peace of mind had now taken his life as well. Josh barely held himself together as the pair returned to Akron. Once back at home, he jumped into his own car and hurried to his brother's house. He was greeted by police cars, yellow crime tape, and a couple of officers who barred him from getting any closer. He held his mother, Susan, as they pleaded for information. But it would be a while yet before Josh learned that Sam's killer wasn't something that had been slipped into his veins. It was someone who had slipped in through the front door. Sam had been beaten to death. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and beaconjournal.com, This is Unresolved, a look at the unsolved murders and disappearances from the greater Akron area. I'm Paula Schleiss, co-host of Ohio Mysteries, and helping with this ongoing series, which is covered in this podcast, as well as stories in print and online, are Beacon Journal reporter Stephanie Warsmith and my podcast co-host, Steve Yoder. Now, Unresolved. Episode 13, Sam Hughes.
Susan Hughes is a few weeks away from 72. It's been a long time since the fresh-faced, hopeful young woman from Norton found love with her first husband, John, and moved to neighboring Akron to begin their family. Samuel Jason Hughes was her firstborn. When he was a a baby and toddler and all that, I doted on him. And then Joshua would come along, so I had to share my feelings. And that was okay. That's the way it was meant, you know. And um, him and Josh were close. The boys grew up together, two peas in the proverbial pod. John Hughes found work in Denver, so the family moved to Colorado for a few years. My husband was a fisherman, so any place that we would go for recreation, it had to involve his fishing. (laughs) So, but we did get to go up in the mountains a few times because. You know, we found this lake above Idaho Springs, and it was stepping stone lakes. There was one at the bottom where you started, and then you could hike up to a second lake, and then there was one further up. We always hiked up to the third lake. Even in the summer, we had to take winter clothes with us because you never knew when a snowstorm would hit. And and it hit us a few times up in there, yeah. <laughs> But John also influenced his boys in other ways. Their dad smoked marijuana Uh and drank. I don't know that he ever did anything else. but um, So they, they were both around it growing up, you know. Sam never graduated from high school. In his late teens, he thought he might be a mechanic and took some vocational classes for it. But he didn't much care for the structure of school. He left and got a job making toys at the Little Tykes factory. But there were rules there, too. So he decided to become his own boss. He started painting house exteriors. He had a partner, our friend Kenny. They they were a good team. Yeah. They could paint two houses in a day. He didn't like working for other people, so he's he's a hard worker. In 2006, Sam was 31 years old and had been in a decade-long relationship with his girlfriend, Tanya. They had a six-year-old son, Sam Jr., and had been living together on Dayton Street. There were rocky times between Sam and Tanya and between Tanya and Sam's family. But both Josh and Susan said for the most part it was good. They liked her. And Sam was a doting father, taking his son fishing, to car shows, doing all the things he had loved growing up. Usually if Sam was around, Sam Jr. was with him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they they had a closeness, that's for sure. was good to his friends and family, the kind of give-the-shirt-off-your-back generosity that had him offering to do things for people all the time. But some of the things Sam had picked up in his childhood were haunting him. He'd become, you know, a drinker and 
got into using drugs and dealing too. He was dealing drugs. What kind of drugs? Uh, marijuana mostly, but he had started doing cocaine and that I think that took over a big part of his life. And, yes. You know, last year of his life seemed pretty rough. You know, and he didn't want to be that way. The way things were going with Tanya and. He struggled staying in reality. Susan said she remembers the moment her son revealed the new demon that had taken root in his life. One day he came here to the house and we were sitting outside on a bench and he wasn't acting right, you know. I said, what's the matter with you? I said, you just seem like you're, like, really out of it. Because it was different than what happens when they just smoke marijuana. Okay. He said, well, Mom, he said, I guess I better tell you. And I said, sounds like a plan to me, you know. <laughs> he said, I tried cocaine, and I just think it took a hold of him. That December... Sam treated his mom to a birthday dinner at their favorite restaurant, the Longhorn Steakhouse on Howe Avenue. Sam Jr. went with them. He was acting then in that same strange way that day, and even the waitress kept looking at him like, what's going on with you, you know? I mean, it was just a really strange day, and, and I was glad to be with him and my grandson, but... I was just crying inside, you know, because I, I knew that what was going on with him wasn't a good thing. Um, Josh, was this something you were concerned about? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. What did you tell him? I pointed out other friends that went down the same path. Right. <laughs> I begged him. He never tried rehab. No. My, my best friend at the time was a heroin addict. Susan last saw Sam that Monday. He said he'd been hired for a roofing job, a reminder to a heartbroken mother that her son was trying to get his life back in order. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, that's a good thing, you know. And he left, and we hugged and everything, and he left. Josh saw him briefly at the house as well. Sam was acting, in a word, weird. But it was something Josh had come to expect. For like the last year that he was alive, man, there was a lot of stuff he wouldn't talk about. Yeah. You know, things that, you know, later on you find out and go, whoa. Like, that really happened, you know? Yeah. And, and then, you know, I hugged him, told him I loved him. So then in the uh, after... was the last time I seen him. That night, Josh was out playing cards and hanging out with some friends. On his way home, he almost pointed his car toward Dayton Street. When I got to the stop sign to make that left turn, I thought about going to visit my brother then. 
was about 12.30 at night. And I wish I would have. But there's a chance that by midnight, Sam was already dead. Akron Police Lieutenant Dave Whidden has been on the Sam Hughes case since the beginning. It was Sam's estranged girlfriend who found him on Tuesday. She was a nurse's aide at Edwin Shaw Hospital and thought she'd lost her ID badge at the house. She visited Sam the night before to look for it, but they argued and she came away empty-handed. So Tuesday afternoon, a little after 2 p.m., she stopped to have another look. She still had a key to the house, and she expected Sam to be on his way to pick up their son at school. It was the best timing, since the last thing she wanted was another confrontation. So she said she opens the door, she calls out, doesn't get a response from Sam, starts looking for her ID, goes into the living room and sees him on the floor. He's, got a, he's covered in a blanket, and she removes the blanket, and uh, sees that he's 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 dead. He's obviously dead. He's got uh, blood all over him, and he's got a cord wrapped around his neck. So she calls nine one one, and uh, tells the dispatcher what happened. And she actually runs out of the house, and she you know she even refused to do CPR because she's look because look I know he's dead. There's blood. He's covered in blood. Officers responded. Tanya had used her key, so the house had been locked up. There were no signs of forced entry. First responders found Sam as Tanya had described him. Um, there was a lot of blood spatter over some of the curtains, over the blinds, on the couch. Um, it looks like the couch had been ransacked, um, maybe even ripped open. So. And actually, they go down to, uh, they clear the upstairs, and then they go down the basement, and they found out that the blood had leaked through the floor and was dripping onto the basement floor, which caused a huge puddle on the floor and a lot of splatter down the basement. So, um, and there was a footprint on the, a bloody footprint on the steps. So, we later found out that he was keeping a stash of marijuana in a paint can down the basement, and that marijuana was missing. That bloody footprint was a real mystery. Whoever made it had stepped in Sam's blood after he had been dead long enough for the blood to leak through the upstairs carpet and floor and pool onto the basement floor where it had been stepped in. Someone had either returned to the scene or was comfortable enough to linger at the house long after the murder had been committed. The blanket over Sam's face also indicated a level of familiarity. With the blanket being over the face, that would indicate to us that somebody knew him, was close to him, and covered his face up. I mean, that's what they traditionally say. If you do that, you're, you know, it's somebody he knows. Somebody very, very close to him that was there, and somebody had to put the blanket over his head. The medical examiner would determine he had died of blunt force trauma. 
he suffered at least three blows to the head that were strong enough to crush his skull. And he also had a distinctive bruise, a pattern-type bruise on the front of his chest that was right on the, the middle of his chest. Now, he actually looked like he was um, wearing earplugs or those earphones, the old Walkman earphones type, and he may, might have been playing a, a video game. The pattern on Sam's chest was clear, but police were never able to determine what had made it. Whatever the weapon was, it was not left behind. Susan was at work when she got the call that her firstborn was dead. By now, Susan and John were divorced. The call came from her new boyfriend, George. He rang her office phone, told her he was outside, and that she should come join him. It was such an odd request. Susan had little doubt that something had happened to one of her sons. George broke the news as they sat in the car, then drove Susan to Sam's home, while Josh was making his way back home about the same time. In the chilly December air, they all stood outside Sam's North Hill home, wondering what had happened, while assuming it was an overdose. But police were tight-lipped at first because it was something far more sinister. They were conducting a murder investigation. Detectives soon learned that two men Sam was supposed to work with that morning tried to pick him up at 8 a.m., but their knocks went unanswered. They could see inside that the TV was on, but they just thought he was sleeping in and wasn't going to go to work. And they were, they were yelling in for him. They were pounding on the door, yelling for him. No response. They said, well, like, screw him. we got to get to the job and get started. So they just went out and did the job without him. Police conducted dozens of interviews, including everyone in Sam and Josh's extensive circle of friends. Josh himself took a lie detector test and passed. Tanya made herself available every time investigators wanted to talk. Slowly, the details of Sam's life was laid bare. There was the drug dealing, Sam had mostly been a small-time dealer, selling marijuana to the same friends that he smoked with. But had he jumped to trafficking and harder drugs? And to strangers? Something had made Sam paranoid in recent weeks. He'd been telling people he needed to get a new phone, and that he feared somebody had hacked his computer. He bought a new security system for the house, Detectives followed every lead, collecting details of every argument Sam had had in recent weeks, peeling away the layers of his relationship with Tanya, making a list of who he owed money to and who owed him. There was no shortage of theories, and in a world where drugs were involved, no shortage of potential suspects. Susan and Josh are certain they were right all along. It might not have been an overdose, but drugs were to blame. Well, I'm sure it was because of the drugs. 
that's my own personal theory, but I am more than sure it had something to do with him being involved in the cocaine. Either someone was there to rob him, or someone was there to collect on something owed. Right. That's the only two theories I can come up with because yeah. outside of that, like I said initially in this conversation, he would have given his shirt off his back. Yeah. The car broke down on the side of the road. He was the one to pull over and help him. Lieutenant Whidden says one avenue of interest has always stood out to him. He would. There's another person that he was very, very close with, a female. She would get clients for him and bring them back to the house. And he would make transactions at his house after meeting these people in the bar. So was that how it happened? A trusted go-between vouching for someone who turned out to be a killer. One of the things was certain was that he wouldn't let anybody in his house he didn't know. That was one thing all of his friends said. We interviewed like two dozen of his friends, and none of them, they all said he would never let anybody in if they didn't know him. While this case has been growing cold for 16 years, Whidden said it can still be solved. He's confident the people involved are still around and that there are other people who know who they are. Whidden is just waiting for someone's conscience to catch up. That come-to-Jesus moment when they're ready to unburden their own soul. I think somebody that we've already talked to has information that knows. Ask Susan and Josh how much they want this case solved, and you'll find out that's a complicated answer. They took something that... Yeah. Left a big hole in our hearts. Big hole. Regardless of his drug use, the things that was going on in his life, he was still her son and my brother. If you have any information that could help solve this case, please call Lieutenant Dave Whitten of the Akron Police Department at 330 330- That's it for this month's edition of Unresolved, a collaborative podcast between Ohio Mysteries and the Akron Beacon Journal. Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. 
from the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions. You have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.